We went into the bank. Don't think there were any employees in there still. I think they had gone out the front. And there was a large man, properly dressed gentleman, that was lying dead on the floor. More than 100 people stood in front of the First State Bank of Cossie, Texas, crying and hugging each other. The crowd spilled into the main street of the small railroad town built in the late 1870s. 52-year-old Michael Wells, the bank president and a beloved community leader, had been shot three times in the back before the bank was scheduled to open for morning business. The vault was locked, no money was missing. But the day before, a 68-year-old business owner phoned the bank's president to report that $30,000 was missing from his account. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here with former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston to talk about one of his cases. It was a murder bank robbery in a small Texas town, a town known as the small town with the big heart. And this case just about broke the heart of that little town uh, named Cossie, located uh, southeast of Waco, of uh, population 500. Bill, when the call came in, you were with the Texas Ranger on the trail of a murderer involved in international terrorism. What happened next? Right. We were executing a federal search warrant, probably not more than 30 miles away from this little town. And the call came to the Ranger that there had just been a, an apparent bank robbery, and it was close by. And so the ranger said, let's go. And I got in the car with him, and he sped quickly toward Cossey, Texas. And uh, we arrived there shortly after other law enforcement arrived. And at the crime scene, inside the crime scene tape, what, what did you find? And was there anything there immediately raised suspicion among all of you? You know, no, it's just kind of a sad deal and, and shocking. The, um, we went into the bank um, don't think there were any employees in there still. I think they had gone out the front. And there was a large man, properly dressed gentleman, that was lying dead on the floor. And I couldn't see a, couldn't readily see a, a wound or anything. It was just odd. And so we, you know, walked past him toward the back of the bank where some other officers were and uh, began to hear kind of what happened. But it, it looked like, and it appeared to all, there that this was a tragic bank robbery. So David Truitt, the head cashier that had been there for 20 years, she was the kind of the right-hand person working with 52-year-old Michael Wells, the bank who ran the bank, the bank president, a small bank, only four employees. She had called 911, claimed that said an intruder came in the door. Right. Knocked her out. Right. And that when she awakened, there was her boss fatally shot three times in the back. She then uh, said she called her husband. Now, about 15 minutes later, this is early morning. It's around 730 a.m. Her husband, Jerry Truitt, runs into a grocery store located next to the bank and says, something's happened at the bank. Come quick right now. He's yelling out. And so he and the... uh, Grocery store owner run down there, and he, here it is. And his wife, the head cashier, raises the 
bangs on her forehead to show that there's a knot where she's been hit. Her story in reporting this apparent bank robbery was almost like out of a book, maybe a television show from the 60s. Mm-hmm. She There's a knock at the back of the bank, in other words, a back door, she says, and I guess the environment there was such a small town you know, situation, she didn't hesitate to open it, but she says when she opened that back door, someone struck her on the head or something, and she hit the floor, knocked out, and then said she was unconscious. And anyway, that that was her story, and that was what that was what the police were responding to, and that was the assumption at the time. She and Jerry Trude, her husband, who's run to the grocery store next door, they were high school sweethearts. He's from a prosperous farming family, operates a, a successful gravel truck business, and you know everybody just thought they were nice folks in the community. And also now, Michael Wells, you know he's a hometown boy. He went to Texas A&M, then went and served in the Army for two years. Great guy. Yeah, he, just a great reputation. He married his sweetheart not far from where the bank was at the First Baptist Church. It has an imposing, steepled, white building like we see in these small towns. It was in the heart of the town. And he was everything you see a leader in these communities to be. He was a church deacon, Sunday school teacher, church treasurer. You know, one of the people said, uh, you know, he was handsome, dry-witted, just generally a good man. And his sister said he trusted everybody. He was school board president. I mean, he did everything for a town that size with the problems they have sometimes in raising money and having good schools. He did everything he could for that town, which was just, you know, he was the prince of the town in many respects and a wonderful guy. And yeah, he was very trusting. He didn't look for the bad in people. He looked for the good in people. And yes. that may have been relevant here. Well, he, he even worked with the in the nursery at the church. And uh, the mayor said, I, you know, I've never heard an unkind word about him. So he seemed the most unlikely. And Bill, I mean, this kind of, this was a rare kind of robbery in sm- small towns. It was, you know, not long before this, a couple of years maybe before this, I had prosecuted a case. Actually, we've done a, a story on it. It was a case in Leon County, which just about oh, 45 minutes east of Cossie. And that was a case where a bunch of kids from Houston came up, a little gang, and yes. robbed and murdered, yep. robbed a bank in Centerville, Texas, and murdered an elderly woman. It didn't remind me of that, but the you start thinking that this is someone or some group of people taking advantage of a small town. These banks, particularly back then, are not well secured. They do trust too much. So it had the look of someone from you know Houston or Dallas or someplace else that had taken advantage of this lack of security at a small bank. That's what it looked like. And I'm going to put a link to that episode in our show notes because it's one of those that I covered as a reporter and you prosecuted. Them. I did. But that's what you think of in these small towns. Yeah. It's probably not someone from there. Well, of course, they wouldn't because they'd be recognized. It's probably someone from out of town, probably someone that's, you know, surveilled the bank, determined it's a weak little bank to hit, almost like Bonnie and Clyde did, hit these small town banks and get out of town. Anytime there's a bank robbery, and of course, that's the FBI's specialty as well. They always come in and start running audit. Is this when everybody perks up and goes, oh, there's something else going on here? You know, the FBI on this case, an agent named Jim Fossum, 
did a really great job. And he and a prosecutor that worked for me named John Fennessy, they, well, let me tell you why they, um, why all of us in the first day or so of this began to wonder. Ms. Truitt, the bank uh, head cashier, you know, had her story mm-hmm. uh, that she'd opened the back door, got, as we say, conked on the head by something, and it knocked her out, and she woke up, and all of this had happened. And, you know, that, that standing alone, you kind of look at it a little bit. I'd had a couple of really bad concussions by this time in my life, football and rodeo, and I knew that to get knocked unconscious, man, it takes a whale of a hit to knock you unconscious. And you don't normally stay out that long. Medically, her story was possible, but not, you know, likely. But then later that day, she apparently, she had been examined by the, you know, right after the call, and they found a little knot on her head. It wasn't huge. But then she reported to a doctor later and uh, said, oh, gosh, I'm having really, you know, a lot of headaches and head trouble. And he felt her head. Well, there were a couple of knots on her head that weren't there earlier. So everybody's like, you know, those things don't pop up. It's not a cartoon. They don't pop up on their own. You have to get struck and you have to get struck recently. So everybody's saying, did this lady go to be more convincing, knock herself on the head with a hammer or something and show up at the doctor so she could claim more likely, you know, concussion and unconsciousness. And that, that made everybody wonder what's going on here. Is this really what it appears to be a bank robbery from some stranger? Well, it also struck me. They were no spent shell casings. And usually, these usually are bank robberies I covered. These are fast deals. Nobody, the, the robbers don't stick around to pick up shell casings. Unless it's a revolver, of course. But this was a caliber that, as I recall, that's more likely an automatic. Yeah, 25. Right. So that's not there. And then a few days later, she resigns from the bank. She did. So her behavior, her story was tolerable initially, but her behavior began to be the telltale because, uh, as I said, that day she reports, you know, headaches and there's a couple extra knots on her head, which was very odd. And then she's wanting to get away from the bank. You know, oh, this was so terrible. Got to get away. And as you said, then really great work by an FBI agent who got into the books of the bank. And the reason that this had to be done and couldn't be done quickly was because this bank and you don't see them anymore. Almost nowhere do you see banks like this anymore. This was like a passbook bank. So in other words, people that are old enough to remember this, if you had a savings account, you had a little book, a little folder-looking book, and you had your running account yeah. in it. I had one of these in high school. It was the first thing you did. You went down. <clears throat> Dad took you down to the bank, and you got your passbook. Cause <laughs> son, you're going to have credit someday, That's and you got to right. have a bank account. That's right. And so instead of a checking account, although many have that, they would do a little passbook account. And many elderly people and even people that weren't so old in that community who had been farmers and ranchers and saved money you know, for 10, 20, 30, 40 years had – large savings accounts that were operated by passbooks. And so the passbook they had, the little book, which had a running account total, that was what they had to go off of. Well, the problem is that's an easy mark for someone that wants to embezzle or steal because 
your evidence is just the account, the number on this little passbook, mm-hmm. which may have nothing to do with what the bank's records show. If someone had a bad motive, they could give you a passbook account showing forty six thousand dollars. Someone could take thirty thousand. The bank might know, but you wouldn't, yeah. and you may not know for years. So that was the exposure the bank had, and that was why a hand, really a hand audit had to be done. Yes, yeah, before the days of computers. We're going to pause right there, take a message for our listeners, and we'll be back to talk about the audit more on the passbooks. All right, so Bill, the FBI is investigating the finances of the bank, and you've explained how easy it is in the old system of passbook. This is pre-computer age of, uh, of really for the consumer to have a computer. What does the FBI find? They find that while the passbook amount that an individual might show was a certain figure, the bank's money on hand did not add to that. And <clears throat> after a while, it became apparent that over a period of months and years, hundreds of thousands of dollars were missing from the bank. In other words, folks who had on their account a certain amount, the bank did not show that in their account. And the bank's computer, which was only run by this woman, uh, this head cashier, you would have had to have gone in, you know, dug through each account, looked at that, compared it to the passbook to even know. Because you can assume the person knows that's their balance. Well, wait a minute. So you have to go back to the actual passbook. So at any rate, it's almost like having a notepad to operate off of, and you have to audit a notepad. And that's what happened. And it began to show great disparity in people's accounts. And then at the same time, the agents were doing a Oh, well, you probably called a net worth mm-hmm. cash expenditure analysis of this this woman. And that began to not add up very well for her as well. Yeah. So, you know, around town, you know, I, I got a sense people wondered, but they you know, it was just so trusting. But, you know, they had uh, two high end pickup trucks, very expensive pickup trucks. Four big John Deere riding lawnmowers, seven recreational four-wheelers, a speedboat, a lake house besides the house in town that they lived in, and they would exhibit purebred cattle at a livestock auction. We know how expensive that is. And they and they had like a $50,000 cattle trailer. It was a lot of money back then. So here it all was, but uh, apparently people, the town folk rationalized it and thought, well, they've... Uh, He's got maybe a trucking they, business, yeah, and, and maybe they, they have got cattle, and, and they're thinking maybe he's got proceeds from a gas well. There were right. gas wells around there, right. and maybe he's inherited a bunch of land, and turned out not to be true. Now, interestingly, in the aftermath, the clerks in the bank described uh, David Truitt, as the head cashier, as a real controlling personality. She's supposed to train them on the computer. Would not, did not do it, and it said that she was in a relationship in which she wore the pants and dominated her husband, who was a little older, and really kind of bossed him around. Right. And so the personality of David Truitt, who became now the suspect in this case, 
was, yes, was controlling and was sneaky. So you and I have talked before when we talked about criminals that there's a similarity between those that embezzle and forge and arsonists, actually. And they all have these certain traits that have to do with control, wanting a sense of control, sometimes being very behind the scenes or sneaky in how they gain and keep control. But she was absolutely that. She fit that. And the more they looked, the more they could tell that she had almost complete control of the bank's finances to the exclusion, intentional exclusion of everyone else. And the bank president, bless his heart, was so trusting, he just let her. And there was no squawking from the community. You know, it was a, a customer in the day or so before this yes. that said, hey, something's wrong. My, I think I'm missing $30,000. That exposure of the possible embezzlement is what caused probably caused this woman to go, uh-oh, I'm getting ready to get caught. And so that's what led to the next thing. Yeah, and like the day of the murder, that customer was scheduled to come in. And the night before the uh, head of the bank, he gets a he gets a mysterious phone call to meet at the bank early before it opens but he told his wife he thought it sounded like David Truitt. And so he's, you know, I, I'd love to have known what was in that. But Michael Wells goes down to the bank, and then he's later found shot in the back. I think that Ms. Truitt probably convinced him that something was amiss at the bank, and they need to, he needed to get in early to deal with it in some fashion. And it was important for her to have just those two, just her and him at the bank. It was important for her not to have any people, to be early enough in the morning so that were no people near the bank. I think she chose that caliber weapon, frankly, because it has a small report. It doesn't make a huge, loud bang compared to others. And I think that each step of that was well-planned by her. It didn't work out for her, but at the time, well-planned. In fact, if she had not over how many times have we talked about a criminal over-engineering a case, yes. overdoing it? Matt Baker, the Baptist preacher who murdered his wife, you know, took too many steps to cover it. The uh, bomber uh, that we spoke about that sent a bomb to his wife, he takes the font of New Times Roman off his computer. He didn't need to do that. Right. Ms. Truett should not have hit herself on the head a couple more times to make it look better because she just sunk her ship with early suspicion of her. So she over-engineered. She'd done pretty well until then in this crime, but she didn't get away with it partly because she over-engineered her, her defense. I always say it's a case that the, uh, the criminal has to-be has watched too many cop shows. Right. You know, it, it doesn't <laughs> right. come out like the cop shows. They, they thought maybe they could get the, get out in front of the forensics uh-huh. and – each of these examples, the person got in front of the forensics to such a degree that yeah. they showed culpability. They showed why they would want to cover it up. So once that audit's done, it was, uh, gosh, I was looking back here. It's somewhere around $730,000 is gone. And now in that, in that exam they've done of their personal finances, they found out the husband had made payments as well on farm loans and other stuff. Uh, you know, north of $25,000. So they're both arrested for embezzlement. Does the case start with you 
for on the federal charges because now they're later going to they're going to be state charges for murder as well. Well, the what happened was that again this FBI agent and this assistant that worked with and for me, they had an idea of how it could proceed. They figured out enough forensically and then enough on the embezzlement side that they thought they could charge her. They did because it was a federally insured bank, of course, and they charged her and the the way the federal sentencing guidelines can work is you can get a huge sentence if someone is killed during a during an offense, which was here. So they moved forward first and they wanted the husband's cooperation, which they eventually, I believe, got. But they uh, they moved first federally and the state, I think, followed up behind, as I recall. OK, so in federal court, the old court where you were, she was sentenced to 30 years and a $10,000 fine. But then she ended up pleading guilty in state court and got a sentence of 50 years. Pled to murder, didn't she? Yes. Oh, yeah, she pled to murder. But during this process, when this is going on, her attorney wanted to get her out on bail, wouldn't do that, but th- convinced the judge to put her in a half, let her go in a halfway house in the way in Waco. But what really got me, there were all these town folk that came in and testified about what a trustworthy and wonderful person she was. And I'm like, have you have you not read the newspaper? You know that almost always happens. You know, you have part of the folks who say, "Yeah, I knew she was a rat," <laughs> and I've you know I saw it all along, and the other faction is no she's a wonderful person or he's a wonderful person in a given case no they're wonderful like the baptist preacher his congregation you know part backed him and part didn't and so that happens because people you know they don't want to look foolish for having been friends with someone who's a murderer for one thing and so they tell the court this but yes she got to the halfway house and couldn't act right there could she no so she tries to run over the wife of a man she's gotten involved with at the house, halfway house, another criminal, and gets charged with uh, attempted assault. Right. She, so this this lady who did this deal, it's, you know, look for some feeling or a conscience in connection with stealing, you know, 90-year-old farmer's life savings. So that first, let's go there. And, and most of those victims... <clears throat> that she stole from the bank were elderly. Yes. Obviously, the people really wouldn't be looking at those past books right. and keeping up. Vulnerable people. So she didn't mind at all. Um, she didn't mind at all taking their money, taking their life savings, and leaving them in the dark about it to find out someday or if their estate or kids or whoever to find out. And so, well, let's look there. That's Is that a psychopath? Well, I don't know. That's just – but that's, that's pretty mean. That's not like – taking money that you know will be brought back so then she so that she doesn't get caught she murders one of the finest men or the finest man in town one of the finest yeah. folks you could ever meet and she's been at that bank 20 years he trusted her trusted Everybody her implicitly trusted he paid her. her well he gave her authority he didn't mind her being a little bossy he let her you know her job was uh, how she made it to be she shot him in cold blood in the bank, right in front of the safe. That's where he was. And he dropped. And, and of course, whether or not any aid could have helped him, she, you know, she's not going to get any aid at all. She watches him die and then makes up a wild story about it. And then, yes, a few months later, while she's awaiting trial, she tries to run over someone 
So this lady is a black widow with no conscience, and she doesn't care who she hurts, what she does. She didn't care that her husband got in big trouble over this. As far as she's concerned, he deserved it. He should have kept his mouth shut. So this is a real old-fashioned old um, Ma Barker-type character. <laughs> Ma Barker's that's <laughs> Because, you know, in all the cases I've covered at all, it's it's rare to find women committing murder. And it's more of a guy thing, you know. But but look at her personality. Oh, she's yeah. She's very controlling. She's yeah. very bossy. And she's she's done this. She I'm sure she fancies herself the greatest embezzler ever because she's done this year after year. And she's got hundreds of thousands of dollars and laughing all the way. And finally, when she has someone that might confront her, she will not tolerate the loss of control. She's Bonnie Parker. Right. And so she's going to kill. She's going to kill a person that. And you know what the truth is? I bet you if she had gone to the bank president and said, let me tell you what happened. We got behind on the finances. You know, if she'd have been honest and candid and and he probably would have said, you know, let's work through this. He probably would have. He probably wouldn't even call the police. Yeah, they didn't get behind on their finances. They got they were living way beyond That's right. their means. That's right. But had she been had, yeah. she, had this been an honest not honest. Had this been a dishonest mistake yeah. <laughs> or a series of impulsive moves? Yeah. But no, this was just cold-blooded. And you know what I can't get over is the mentality of so long stealing that much money and thinking you're going to get away with it, that it won't catch up with you. And we always see it does. It does. You know, there was a case about the same time where a woman who was, the, again, the only employee that had to do with finances at a chiropractic office in Waco, Texas, she began stealing money. And uh, before, and no one knew it. What they knew was that there was a fire reported at the office, and the fire department came in, in this other case, and the filing cabinet was on fire. But it, it kind of snuffed itself out. And so, anyway, the, some records were burned, and the chiropractor, not suspecting anything leaves the employee in place even though it was very odd a couple of days later she burns the whole building down why she was covering her embezzlement so yes embezzlers that just take money and think they'll get away with that's one thing but sometimes embezzlers because embezzlers again and arsons and ar- arsonists and forgers my federal judge used to say all come out of the same cut of cloth they're sneaky and dangerous well, David Truitt, she was uh, sentenced to 50 years in prison for murder for the on a state charge, and then 30 years in federal prison on the embezzlement. I looked her up. She's in the federal system today. She, you know, at the time of this broadcast, she's 64. She's here nearby. She's at the federal correctional facility in uh, Fort Worth area, which is a more of a minimum security type place, but. They list a release date as November 8th, 2024. Wow. Well, I hope the state murder case pulls her into the state system and she has to serve a long state sentence there because the embezzlement, the federal accountability is great, but yeah. the the to murder someone like that, I hope she is denied parole for the next 20 years. Yeah, or you're, you're, you're literally letting the black widow back sure. on the street. And I wouldn't trust her to, you know, do one thing right. Well, and this this financial crime and murder had a terrible impact on that community. The bank was on the verge of going under. 
There were people in the community on the verge of going under. So another bank came in and took it over. But as a result of what had happened, you know, they terminated two of the employees that had been there forever that were innocent in all of this. And now they, they suffered. Those that live in large cities forget or maybe aren't aware of how delicate small towns are in terms of their finances. You see little towns in Texas that have sort of dried up, um, in, particularly in sort of northwest and west Texas. Usually it didn't dry up at once. Something happened. A One business went under. And then because that business bought from this business, they go under. And because that business was supported by it, it can, and it, but it did. The town of Cossie suffered greatly. Good people, good salt of the earth people, farmers and ranchers, people that have been there forever. The whole town suffered because of one person's selfishness. So what does this say about trust? Your father was a prosecutor. My father was involved in law enforcement and small business. And in that time, everything was done on a handshake. But what about today in trust? I mean, people have asked me, the investigative reporter, who do you trust? And I went, nobody. <laughs> nobody. You know, there's all these things I want to look, right. take a look at. It's such a sad state of affairs, but, you know, there's, there have always been people that would betray and always been people that would steal and embezzle. So that's always been with us. But when it happens in a little town like this, it shakes everybody to the core because they do think, I saw that person at church. Yeah. I saw that person here or there. And it, when you shake someone's uh, trust, you can shake everything from their faith all the way down to their family. Well, Kasi was known as the um, small town with a big heart, but I think it's fair to say they ended up with a broken heart. They did. It was it was sad and uh, a case of, a, as you called her, a black widow who uh, stopped at nothing, uh, do, would do anything to save her own neck. So, Bill, we're going to dig around more in our case files, my reporter's notebooks, your case files, and so we'll be back with stories from inside the crime scene tape. And here's a footnote to the case. Jerry Truitt, the husband of convicted killer David Truitt, claimed he did not know that his wife was embezzling money from the bank. During the second day of his money laundering trial, a plea agreement was reached to reduce his charge to 10 years probation. The pending murder indictment for Michael Wells' death was also dismissed. Wells' wife met privately with Truett for a half hour while the details of the plea bargain were being worked out. Mrs. Wells said, his boys need their father. I don't want his boys to suffer like mine. Jerry loves his children. The more than $700,000 embezzled by his wife was never recovered. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. And there's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.